0: Alright, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday. January twenty-third, two thousand and nine. Well, it didn't take Obama very long to uh via signature just flex his Presidential muscles and uh, and voila, we're now uh, the United States is now funding abortions abroad. What do you have to say about that? Mm-hmm. I thought he was a new kind of uh, liberal. You know wh- <sighs> Yeah. Anyway, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And this is the program. That you may have heard about, that you that you may have been warned about. This is the problem that could cause you um, supreme dissatisfaction. Apparently, because I'm I'm the one dividing the body of Christ. How am I doing that? <laughs> yeah. You know, well, they say doctrine divides, and the, I guess the way I'm doing that is by comparing what pastors are saying and what and what prominent Christian leaders are saying out there in the marketplace of ideas, um, now called the church, and. Comparing him to the Word of God. Now, if you have a pastor that is humbly, faithfully preaching God's Word Sunday after Sunday and pointing you to Christ and Him crucified for your sins, you you might actually appreciate him more. But if not, then you might be you listening to this program could cause you to want to leave your church. I just warn you ahead of time that's the case. So uh, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We've got a good program lined up today. A little bit of a casual Friday. Uh we got some good uh listener email that we want to go through. Uh part of what we'll be talking about today has to do with um have the uh spirit have spiritual gifts ended? H- are are they done? Are they over? Apparently uh there's some people out there who have who are making the claim that Romans chapter thirteen, verse eight teaches that the uh, spiritual gifts have ended. And uh uh, prophecy and tongues and things like that, and so we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, we've got uh, we're we're going to continue our march through the Gospel of Mark. Got some good stuff today, and then we're going to talk. We're, we're going to be relevant today. Yeah, I, I know it's hard to believe that Chris Roseborough would would agree to be <laughs> relevant. And actually, I don't strive to be relevant at all. But uh, one of the things that's yeah, I mean, we've got something that's happened, you know, this week, the bailout. Okay. We've got the bailout that's been happening regarding the banks and the problems that are going on in the economy and uh relevant church pastor, Tim worth. I mean, life coach, Tim worth, he's uh done two sermons now on, on the subject of bailouts. And I'm not going to, I'm not doing the sermon review on this because I want to necessarily point out just how rotten his sermon is because, um, well, it is, but because this subject, the subject of bailout, believe it or not, there's some great gospel passages that uh, if you if you were just, if you were, how do I put it this way? Life being what it is right now, economically here in the United States and abroad, I mean, things are tough. I, I know all about things being tough, um, more than I even talk about on this program. But see, the whole the whole concept of the bailout really lends itself well to the gospel, to preaching the gospel. And so today, as part of the program, we're going to look at the subject of bailout, and well, at least we'll do a little bit of a sermon review, and I'll give you the gospel version of it up front, and then we'll just compare, we'll just do a little comparison as to um how that gospel presentation of the concept of bailout, you're going to love this one, uh, compares to the preaching at relevant church, which tries to, you know, to, it's that new seeker sensitive. We want to be safe. We want to create a safe environment for people to come and, and grow in Jesus, but we are not going to teach them Jesus um, because that would make things not safe, apparently. So I've got ai uh, got an email today from Mike Ritzman. He's an accountant and, 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 uh, and well, you know, Mike. I wonder what your take would be on this uh, bailout sermon that we'll talk about today. Because as a, as an accountant, you know, I'm sure you understand the importance of counting and and making people pay their debts or or or, in, or you know and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he says, "Hey, Marlboro. Mm-hmm. See that? See that? I don't know if I if I mind that particular mangling of my name because you know um, inside I." Although I have this nerdy, overweight exterior, I like to think of myself as a rugged, individualistic cowboy kind of guy. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, he says, uh, You said something uh, yesterday during your review of Scott Hodge's pep rally that made me think. By the way, yesterday's uh, sermon review was from a gentleman by the name of uh, Scott Hodge. He's got a uh, a church in Aurora, Illinois uh, that... Um, and we reviewed his uh, sermon regarding certain leadership during times of uncertainty. And uh, there, there was a supreme lack of anything biblical there. Anyway, he says uh, maybe Scott Hodge's parishioners learn about Christ through Osmo Jesus. <laughs> Okay, now, this is a new word that I think Michael Ritzman has made up here. He says, haven't you heard of it? He says, there's exegesis, which is reading out of the text. There's eisegesis, which is reading into the text. And now, apparently, there's a third category called osmogesis, which is absorbing the text by touching it. <laughs> Actually, that is the only chance these people have, since they're not hearing about Christ and Him crucified from the pulpit. Um, yeah, wow. Um, you know, Mike, you're absolutely right. Says P.S. Hope to see you at the Brothers of John the Steadfast conference. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, speaking at uh, I don't know what these people were thinking. Uh, the Brothers of John the Steadfast, which is a uh, confessional Lutheran uh, organization, and they're at, they're out in the Chicago area too. Um, they, I, I, for whatever reason, something possessed them, uh, hang, hang on, I'm going to look them up on the, uh, uh, on the internet. Something possessed them to ask me to act to, to the, yeah, their, their, uh, their website is steadfast, steadfastlutherans.org. Do not say that three times fast. You'll end up embarrassing yourself. Like I just about did. And so their conference is February 13th and 14th. And, uh, if you go to steadfastlutherans.org org. Um uh for whatever reason something got into these people. They've invited me to be a conference speaker at <laughs> their conference. Ay, 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 poor people. Anyway, so uh so Michael, if you're gonna be at the, the Brothers of John the Steadfast conference, yes, you will have the opportunity of uh of um, of meeting me in person and for whatever reason uh having to endure whatever I have whatever I decide to say as part of the conference so uh yeah if, if in fact folks if you would, would like to come out to the brothers of john the steadfast conference go to steadfastlutherans.org um they have on their homepage. it says uh, national conference february 13th to 14th click on that and you get information on what you can do to uh um to sign up and attend and yes, I will be there. So February 13th and 14th, I will be there. So Mike, I look forward to meeting you as long as well as some other people.
1: Okay, let's see here.
0: Uh Mr uh, Mr Rosebro. <laughs> now, this is from Fred, uh Freddy, Freddy Finkelstein. Finkelstein. All right, I'm going to I Finkelstein. Okay, wait a second. Here, on. Let me think about this. There's uh the young Frankenstein. So Frankenstein, it's uh, Freddie Finkelstein. Okay, I, I just had to remember that because you remember the movie uh, Young Frankenstein, and uh, and uh, the the Frankenstein character doesn't like to be called Frankenstein. It's Franken Frankenstein. Okay, so Freddie Finkelstein writes. He says, "Excellent music selection at the beginning of your show yesterday. I loved it. Yesterday, we uh, we had the op- uh, honor of uh, doing the world premiere of a song written by Roxy Lee, and uh, the song is named." uh get out of the pulpit we played that yesterday in fact today i'll put uh links up at fightingforthefaith.com where you can go to uh download it and uh we'll put up a page also with the lyrics uh, some of you have emailed me and said that you really enjoyed the song and you wanted to get grab a copy of it so i will send you to Roxy Lee's uh, mp3 site where you can download it i don't know if it requires you to uh uh, to log in or to uh, get an account there But uh, we'll work that out if there's a problem And then I'll also put up a page Where you can read the lyrics um, And uh, just, so yes So Roxy Lee if you're listening uh, Freddie Finkelstein uh, liked your song and, and we got quite a bit of positive feedback on that song Anyway he says Um uh, Freddie writes, he says, you mentioned that your passion for what you do on your show has nothing to do with the competitive enjoyment of theological or biblical uh, uh, upsmanship. Um, and that was his summary of my statement, and that's absolutely correct. Um, this show is not about how, how smart Chris Roseborough is or how it, this is not that is not the motivation for what we do here. Um, and, you know, in fact, my goal is just to proclaim the truth And quite frankly, that means that I'm probably the most unoriginal person on the planet Um, because it's not my truth. (laughs) It's God's truth. And all I got to do is pass it along and not mess with it. Anyway, he says, but because of uh, you yourself have been deceived by flagrant false teaching, I have suffered from such deception as well by people that I'm still convinced Should have known better. Such deception and seeing it continue to flourish and to continue to draw people away from the teachings of Scripture and away from Christ certainly does fill one with a sense of urgency, especially when it is so clear to us who have been down the same road and through the Holy Spirit's gracious work by means of His Word been carried back to Him and restored to the truth. He says, if you don't mind, I will self-identify with you in this respect. And No, I appreciate that. And he says, I especially enjoyed your selection from Ignatius. He and Polycarp are among my favorites of the early uh, anti Nicene fathers. Although I was a little disappointed in the account of his martyrdom, it seemed in some ways like the fulfillment of a death wish to me, unlike that of Polycarp. Um, yeah, Ignatius and Polycarp were contemporaries. Uh, just... Uh, uh, anyway Fred thank you for the email great point uh d- let me use that as a springboard in talking about Ignatius and Polycarp I keep making the same point and I'll make it over again today and that is is that Christianity did not begin when you became a Christian Christianity is not an American phenomenon it didn't begin when the founding fathers started the you know had the revolution and you know and wrote the constitution um it didn't begin yesterday uh at at your local grocery store or Uh, business park. No, Christianity has been around much longer even than the church, because when we look at the Old Testament saints, they are people who trusted in Christ by looking forward to the cross. We are trusting Christ by looking backwards to the cross. And so there is a long, rich history within uh, Christianity, and um, the saying that uh, if you forget history, that you're destined to repeat it or repeat its errors is absolutely true. Um, so it's important for us to get a sense of the historic Christian faith and historically what Christianity has taught. And believe it or not, if you, if you want to read the uh, the writings of the early Christian church fathers, you could do that. Um, a lot of the stuff is available online and um yesterday we read something from ignatius and just you know by way of a little bit of a aside ignatius and polycarp were contemporaries and uh, church history tells us that both of them studied together really at, uh at, under the apostle john polycarp was uh was definitely an apostle of the apostle uh, di- not an apostle a disciple of the apostle john or uh, well, a disciple of Christ through the teaching and tutelage of the apostle John and so was Ignatius in fact there's even a there's a a tradition that goes way back and hard to track it down so we don't know if it's historically true or not but it's an interesting story um that there was a, in the, one of the gospels it talks about how Jesus has a little child stand in front of the disciples and, and basically says that unless you have the faith of a, of a child that you know you cannot inherit the kingdom of god well the uh there's a there's a tradition that says that Ignatius was that child whom Jesus had stand in front of the disciples when he was telling that story. Now we don't know whether that's true or not. Um it's really hard to to pin and pin down, but that does that does accurately tell us about the age of uh of Ignatius's age. He was born somewhere around the time of 30 AD and so it's completely feasible that um that he was a young child during a, you know you know 2 or 3 years old you know at the tail end of Jesus's ministry here on earth <clears throat> now what's funny is is that uh, i read to you some things regarding Ignatius and his view regarding um how do i put this his view regarding uh, uh heretics and false doctrine and what he said was absolutely beautiful. And you know, funny enough, he had a very interesting passion for the truth. Uh, Polycarp, who was uh, who was his contemporary, also had a passion for the truth. And Polycarp actually tells us about John, the apostle John's uh, passion for the truth. And there's a story that Irenaeus writes about in his uh, book called Against Heresies. And in there, he tell uh, he relays the story that Polycarp told regarding the apostle John. Now, back in the day, uh, back in the, in the early part of the Christian church, there was a Gnostic heretic by the name of Cerinthus, and um, Cerinthus taught some really bad heresies, and there's a story that Polycarp relays—now, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the Apostle John uh, went to live in Ephesus— for a while, He was one of the, you know, after Paul had established the, the church in Ephesus, the apostle John later went as like the bishop and the, you know, the person who was in charge of the churches there. And uh, church history tells us that, uh, remember when John was at the foot of the cross while Jesus was being crucified, and Jesus said to his mother, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so Jesus charges the apostle John to care for his mother, Mary. And, uh, and so church history, one of the things that we learn from the traditions of the church is that the apostle John went to Ephesus and while he was there, he was still, he was caring for Jesus's mother, uh, Mary, um, you know, in, in basically in obedience to what Christ had asked him to do. So while John, the apostle John was in Ephesus watching over the churches there, we learned from Polycarp that there was a time when, uh, <laughs> when John goes to the bathhouse, basically, to bathe and, you know, engage in personal hygiene. And it just so happened that Serenthus was in the bathhouse. And so, apparently, John, seeing uh, Syrinthus in there, l- rushed out of the bathhouse. And some stories say that uh, he-, he rushed out in a huff in such a way that he was uh, naked. And uh, here's here's what Irenaeus writes. He says, there are also uh, those who heard from uh, Polycarp that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving that Serinthus was within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So <laughs> Apparently, the apostle John wasn't into breaking bread or even bathing with uh, heretics, and so Polycarp himself replied to Marcion who Marcion was another heretic who who had a hard time uh kind of with the authority of scripture and and uh and wouldn't bend the knee and admit that certain passages certain uh parts of scripture were scripture and uh so Marcion Polycarp himself replied to Marcion who met him on one occasion and uh, Polycarp asked uh Marcion do you know me and uh And he said, and so Polycarp said to Marcion, I do know thee, you are the firstborn of Satan. (laughs) So apparently neither John, uh, Ignatius, or Polycarp were much into uh, uh, extending the right hand of fellowship to people who were twisting the truth. And I think we need to recapture that here in in the christian church especially here in america or we're doomed to be overrun by doctrines of demons folks there is a such thing as a truth and there's a such thing as an error and with there being nothing new under the sun satan isn't inventing new errors it's just that there's new advocates for old heresies that are running around now within christian circles and getting christian publishing deals uh or by or getting publishing deals by supposedly christian um book houses, and uh, they're going to conferences that are supposed to be Christian, and they're promoting their heresies among the Christian church. I I don't necessarily think that the non-denominational movement that's been really running now for the past 20, 30 years has actually been a good thing. Back when we had denominationalism, there were clear denominations. Yeah, there was bickering back and forth between denominations, and there was mudslinging that went on. There will always be that kind of stuff. Um, but the one thing that denominations did provide was theological and doctrinal oversight, so that if somebody who was you know somebody was teaching something that was false that you know at least in those denominations where the Word of God uh was held as supreme, at least in those cases that those churches were able to exercise denominational uh purging of people who shouldn't be there now with the non denominational movement. Uh, who's supposed to uh, rein in a, a heretic who, at a mega church that's non-denominational, especially one where there there's no elders, there's no theological accountability? Uh, the answer to the question is no one is, and there's no there's no structure in place to do so. And so, I I think that's part of the reason why uh, blogs and radio programs like this have even come into existence. It's funny, you know, the Body of Christ works as a body. And so my job is to kind of be one of the white blood cells. I mean, I guess that's my job. I get to be a white blood cell in the body of Christ and do things that people used to do, and that's hold people theologically accountable to what God's Word says. All right, I got an email from Ola. Ola is uh, that uh, beautiful uh, gal in, uh, in Yorkshire, England, And at one time, I I misconstrued her name, and I actually thought she was a guy. But anyway, she wrote this amazing poem, and uh, she's asked if I would critique it. I'm not going to critique it on the air, um, but I want to read this to you. There, There are some changes I would make to the last verse, but overall, this is an amazing, amazing poem. And I hope that this is actually put to song, because this is the kind of stuff that should be put to song. I mean, I would take this over any... Of the stuff of the the three ele- uh, uh what is it seven eleven songs that that are out there running around the landscape uh, posing as Christian worship, yeah, a seven eleven song is a song that has seven words that's repeated eleven times, usually yeah, with uh, with the girl backups you know and that kind of eerie ethereal keyboardy kind of stuff, not enough theological content in any of those things to fill a Nat's navel. And so here's what Ola writes—a beautiful poem. She says, "Oh, let me read this. It's called—I don't know the name of it, by the way. It's not named." Uh, she's so. Verse one says, "O oh, Savior, I must thank you. You've set this captive free while I was locked in the prison of sin. Your cross became the key. For while I was a rebel, you loved me as your friend. You purchased my salvation. My guilt came to an end." Oh man. Right off the bat, this is a great poem because it's exalting Christ in the work that he's done. It acknowledges our sin, and it acknowledges that Christ is the one who's loved and purchased us through his death on the cross. Um, verse 2, oh, oh, how can I repay you for such a sacrifice? For truly I was guilty, I could not pay the price. Lord, I could never thank you enough for what you've done, for by your great provision my liberty is won. Verse three. Once we were dead and helpless, not knowing God at all, in Adam to all were doomed through sin and subject to the fall. The Son of Man has saved, has saved us, he died and rose again, for in his resurrection life is life for sinful men. O Lamb without a defect, whose life for ours was given. Oh what a perfect scandal that sinners may gain heaven. For by your blood you've purged us, O filthy robes washed white for only by god's loving grace can sinners be made right. oh man we've got a very smart audience and just this is amazing. um i wish i could write verse like this. i i couldn't write a poem to save my life. man this is just exalting christ and what he's done for us. now the last verse is one where i would make some changes but i'm going to read it to you as it as it is. um my only suggestion on it is, is that it, it's a it's a verse that deals with sanctification and it doesn't quite as strongly proclaim Christ as the sanctifier as the other verses proclaim him as the justifier. He says, Oh Father, we praise you, we will praise you. I don't ever like it when we say we will praise, oh Lord, I'm going to praise you, uh, we will praise you. I prefer to say you know, we praise you because the future tense is different than actual present. He says, uh, please help us to obey, fill us with your spirit, empower us each day. Oh Savior, guide us and keep us following your call honoring and serving you most precious all in all oh fantastic stuff man man is this good so that's a a a poem i hope written by olaf from yorkshire england and i really do hope that this is uh put to uh some music that that backs this up because it's just really really good anyway all right so that's our listener email we're going to take our break a little bit early and uh, when we come back, we'll dive into the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll talk about um, this relevant topic of the bailout. <laughs> it's in the news, right? So we might as well talk about it. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far today, believe me, I love uh, I love getting emails, and I read them all, although I don't get an opportunity to respond to all of them on the air. We just don't have that that kind of time. But if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back.
2: Sissyopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: Pythons Flying Circus Church Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
2: Uh, what?
3: You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
2: Uh, I, I couldn't do that. Mhm. <clears throat> I didn't
1: expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects
2: no. Nobody expects the um purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Our chief ex- weapons are. Our chief weapons are um purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay,
3: stop, stop that, stop that. Ah, our chief weapons are purpose. blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. You're, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha, 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 we'll soon change your mind about that.
4: Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com.
0: All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That's right. If you're growing in your understanding of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the gospel, how to defend your faith, how to think critically and biblically, then we need you to support Fighting for the Faith financially. Yeah, you can do it. We, in fact, we love gifts of any sizes. And the way you do that, if you would like to write a check, you can write a check to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California. You can just put SJC if you would like. And that's zip code 92693. Or you can go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Donate button. Yeah, it's that simple. You can actually pay by credit card right there. and, And whammo, blammo, there you have it. You're supporting us. And believe me when I tell you, we actually do need your support. I know these these are tough times. <clears throat> and luckily, we keep our expenses low. So anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported, and we truly thank and appreciate everybody who's uh, supported us so far, and thank and appreciate those of you who will be supporting us now and into the future. All right, we one issue we got to talk about. I've got an email from somebody who was confused and had a question. Got it at the... Uh, This is actually from a question that comes from Melbourne, Australia, and it's from Angela and Glenn. And uh, she says, Hi, Chris. uh, Thank you for your excellent exegesis of various subjects during every broadcast. My husband and I are devoted listeners and always learn a great deal from your lessons. Thank you, uh, Angela and, and Glenn. I appreciate that. She says, I've been discussing the cessation of gifts with Pentecostals of late, and one stumbling block before me, despite doing research, is the use of a single scripture to support the so-called heavenly language. They insist that the Apostle Paul was referring to the ethereal languages in his letter to the Corinthians, for one who speaks in a tongue, and, uh, and not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. In attempting to convey a sound interpretation of the scriptures to those who are caught in the, uh, in the Pentecostal movements, led by... Uh, Todd uh, Bentley, Benny Hinn in the crowd. That's really kind of the, you know, more of the apostolic, new apostolic movement. It's kind of a, a, a strain of Pentecostalism. It says, I'm stymied as to why this particular verse is such a, is such a tough nut to crack. If you could do a broadcast on this phenomenon, Chris, it would be immensely helpful. If not, I would do a, a very appreciative if you could point me towards the correct interpretation. A few interesting videos on the specific apostolic gifts can be found on YouTube. My husband and I both pray. Now, the, funny enough, the... Uh, the the first youtube that they point me to the youtube video they point me to talks about the cessation of of the gifts and uh, and speaking in tongues now let's we're going to kind of unpack it this way okay um first of all i'm going to talk about whether or not gifts are still around and so the verse the first video that they pointed me to basically says that the cessation of the gifts has apparently there there are no gifts anymore like that and it points to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8 it says uh, as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease and as for knowledge it will pass away and there are people there are people and you might even be one of them who argue that based upon this passage that that somehow the gifts of prophecy and and speaking in tongues have ceased okay so we're going to start right there by basically saying that's not a correct interpretation of this passage okay um, I don't think that there is a There is a clear passage out there that would say that the gifts have stopped, all right? And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to apply our rule here in biblical interpretation, and that has to do with, first of all, um, context, context, and context. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in context, and we'll start at verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prof- if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I'm nothing. So Paul here is talking about if we're going to practice the gifts, you know, what are they what what are they you, you do you do them in love for your neighbor, right? So if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, now first thir- Corinthians chapter 13 does not teach that that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended in the apostolic era. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, in context, what we read about here is Paul is looking forward to... The coming and return of Christ, when the perfect comes, that's Jesus Christ. Right now, we currently prophesy in part and we know in part, right? Um, Why? Because we don't see Christ face to face. And definitely tongues will cease in the future when Christ returns. Um, Why is that? Well, we'll all speak the same language. Babel will be undone. Remember the curse of the Tower of Babel where all the languages were confused? Um, It will be undone. And... For those who would argue that uh, that First Corinthians chapter thirteen verse eight says you know that the, that the gifts ended, listen to the gifts that are listed in First Corinthians chapter thirteen verse eight. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So if we're going to get rid of prophecies and uh, and tongues, then we've also <laughs> got to say that uh, knowledge is stops too. Then um, that's just kind of ridiculous. The Holy Spirit gives gifts according to His sovereignty, according to His divine majesty, for the th- th- for the work that He's going to accomplish. Now, coming back to the issue of tongues, what is it? Okay, um, <clears throat> now let me let me come back to the email here, uh, Angela. You asked this question. You said you know, you basically say this. I have been discussing the cessation of gifts with Pentecostals of late, and one stumbling block before me, besides, despite doing research, is the use of a single scripture to support, support the so-called heavenly language. They insist that the Apostle Paul was referring to this ethereal language in his letter to Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians, and this is chapter 14, verse 2 of, uh, of 1 Corinthians. Okay, Now, let's read it out of context so you see what's going on here. When you read it out of context, here's what we read. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Okay. Now, this is a tough verse. Okay. And one of the rules of interpretation is that clear passages govern unclear passages. We got to keep that in mind. And when you pull it out of context, you can make this just say just about anything. So let's let's read this now in context. We just got done reading First Corinthians chapter thirteen or large sections of it, and let's, now let's, let's let's watch where Paul goes with this. So First Corinthians chapter thirteen is the great love passage. It's instructing us to um, to exercise the gifts that God has given us in love. Why is that important? Because historically speaking, the Corinthian church was completely abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They this was chaos, there. Okay, and so now let's read fourteen. We just read thirteen. Let's read fourteen. So Paul says, continues, says, pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. Okay, so Paul's saying, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And he says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. As soon as you attack, as soon as you put verse two in context, you see that verse two is not exalting uh, uh, the gift of tongues or their use of it or abuse of it in the Corinthian church. It's actually, um, in a real sense of the word, um, rebuking the misuse of tongues. Paul here is not making a case for tongues. He's actually making a case against the abuse of tongues. Listen to this. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself builds up himself and the one who prophesies builds up the church notice the dichotomy that's going on here okay the purpose of the gifts is for the church to be edified and and if someone's speaking in tongues the only person who's being quote edified is himself and paul is not that's not being that's not exercising the gift in love that's really exercising the gift selfishly now i want all you i want all of you to speak in tongues but even more i prefer that you prophesy The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the the church might be built up. So uh, uh, here's the deal. Modern-day Pentecostals basically interpret, basically believe that tongues is some private prayer language that you exercise for building up of your spirit. And the entire thrust of Paul's argument in first Corinthians, as it pertains to the gifts is that they, the gifts are for the building up of the body. And he's basically poo pooing this misuse of tongues. And he's saying to instead desire to prophesy so that other people can be built up. So he says now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching the answer to that question is well you don't so if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes how will anyone know what is being played and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound who will get ready for battle so with yourselves if you're if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible how will anyone know what is being said does this sound, by the way, just pause here for a second. Does this sound like somebody who's saying that everybody should be speaking in tongues? No. When you read 1 Corinthians 14 in context, you realize that the Corinthian church was abusing the gift of tongues, and Paul here is, is basically saying, no, you're not using this right, and this is ridiculous. How is anyone being built up by you speaking you know, in such a way that nobody can understand you? Okay? So he's actually speaking against the abuse of tongues. And now, what's interesting, along with this idea of the gift of tongues, you have people in Pentecostal circles who say that everybody has this gift, which is not true, and we'll get to that. Um, not everybody has this gift. And Paul here is basically saying that this gift should not be practiced in church. Okay? Shouldn't be, period. But they do anyway. Anyway, says he says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, but none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, watch what he's doing here. He's not telling the Corinthian church, you know, listen, tongues doesn't exist. It stopped. So stop, you know, stop thinking that way. Instead, he's telling the Corinthian church here to, since they're eager for manifestations of the spirit, to excel in the, in the gifts of the spirit that build up the church. Tongues do not build up the church, especially if you don't understand what the person is saying. Now, go back to Pentecost, You just read the story of Pentecost and you will realize that the gift that was given at Pentecost made it possible for Jesus' disciples to proclaim the gospel of Christ in the languages of the many people who were in Jerusalem at the time. People were hearing the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own native tongues. So when tongues were given at Pentecost, this wasn't an ethereal Spiritual language that nobody could understand. No. These people were given the ability to miraculously speak other languages to proclaim the mysteries of God to the foreigners who were in Jerusalem so that they could hear the gospel in their own language. It's kind of a reverse Tower of Babel. Okay? So when we look at that manifestation of tongues, again, the hearers understood what was being said. And the abuse of tongues in the Pentecostal church, they're, they're just babbling on, humana 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 she drove a Hyundai, and, uh, and saying that that's a, a prayer language, somehow disconnecting the brain from the tongue. Um, but Paul, even if that were the case, let, let's just, you know, Paul doesn't isn't saying, Paul's argument here is that that doesn't build up the church. It's not that, that tongues has ceased. That practice doesn't build up the church. Nobody understands what anybody's saying. So when you got a bunch of people going, blah, 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 whatever, no, no one's being edified, okay? So Paul continues, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Don't sit there and just babble on mindlessly and think that that's a great thing. No, pray that you can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? See, when you read 1 Corinthians 14 in context, this is a slap against the Pentecostal, the, even the current Pentecostal misuse of the gift of tongues, if they're even having. I, I think a lot of those manifestations are, uh, <clears throat> let's just say they're not real. Otherwise, if you give thanks to the, your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless... In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. If the law is written by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider or an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The answer is yes. And that's the point, okay? Much of the Pentecostal manifestations of the gift of tongues are in direct contradiction to the Word of God, and the outsider basically thinks these people are nuts, and the outsider is right. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters— He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay? Again, the purpose of gifts is to build people up. Okay? We thank God that there are men who've been given the gift of teaching where would the church be without teachers and pastors and you know we're all okay we continue if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to god let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh in what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be kept silent in the churches. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there you got it. Okay, so you get the gist of what's going on here. Okay, so. Paul's solution when the Corinthian church was abusing the gifts especially the gift of tongues was to add godly order to what was going on if you claim to have the gift of tongues then you need to pray that God would give you the ability to interpret so that you can know what's being you know what it is that you're saying if you're if you have the gift of tongues and you're at church One, two or at the most three people speak and you do not speak unless there's somebody to interpret because the purpose of the gifts is to edify. And what's interesting is that uh, by the time Clement of Rome uh, writes his uh, epistle to the uh, Corinthian church, all of these bizarre manifestations were brought back under control and you didn't have a church that was being tossed to and fro by all these strange things, but they were a perfectly good and orderly church so when you're so basically uh Angela and Glenn, when you're talking to somebody who's a Pentecostal it's always good to first deal with the the abuses of the manifestation of the gifts okay, and rather than arguing that 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 the gifts have ceased, which biblically i don't think is can be defended, instead, go to the abuses of the gift and say whether whether or not uh Tongues is some kind of a heavenly angelic language uh, between you and God, that which, by the way, is, is really a strained interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14, too. Um Let's deal with what is the proper use of tongues, what Paul instructs people should be doing regarding the tongues, and whether or not, um, whether or not all have such a gift. See, that's one of the problems is, is that in Pentecostalism, they really believe that everybody can have the gift of tongues. Is that the case? Is that what the Bible teaches? Um, The answer to that question is absolutely not. Um, Let me find this passage. Uh, Let me see here. Are all prophets. Okay, here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 12, okay? Now, so one of the things you've got to deal with when somebody is abusing, you know, gifts like that, again let's let's get things under control biblically let's put let's put things back to where they belong um paul writes in 1st corinthians chapter 12 now you are the body of christ and individually you are members of it and god has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets third teachers then miracles then gifts of healing helping administration and various kinds of tongues notice that tongues is at the bottom of the list um so Paul asks the question in the Greek this is really clear because uh, each of these uh, each of these questions is uh, preceded by the particle may it, it, it's uh, and this particle the answer basically means that every one of these questions is being asked is to be understood with the answer is being no it's clear in the in the Greek Paul asks are all apostles answer no are all prophets answer no do all possess gifts of healing answer no do all speak with tongues? Answer no. Do all interpret? Answer no. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Okay? So when we're dealing with somebody who's confused by the excesses of Pentecostalism, bring them to First Corinthians chapter twelve, chapter thirteen, and chapter fourteen, and get them to agree that this is what God's word teaches regarding the exercise of these gifts. And a lot of stuff will fall away. Why? Because it's not in Pentecostal circles. It's not just that they believe that they have a private prayer language. Many times in these churches, they are they are abusing tongues. You know, with many people praying and te- speaking in tongues uh, all at the same time, no interpreters. Uh, they believe that everybody has the gift of tongues when Scripture clearly says that they don't. We get get them grounded in scriptures. And what happens is, is that the excesses and abuses of the gift of tongues many times, if you can show them biblically what the Bible teaches on this, that'll that'll create that'll plant the seed in their mind that the Holy Spirit that will use to later yank them out of it. Um, you know, I've been down this road myself before, and I've had somebody walk me through it. What was really funny is when I was working at Focus on the Family, there was a gal there who was absolutely convinced that I must have the gift of tongues because, according to her, everybody has the gift of tongues. And she was, um, she thought I was a gifted teacher because I would teach from time to time at chapel at Focus on the Family. But she just thought that I was somehow shortchanging myself because I didn't have the gift of tongues. And so she really, 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 really wanted me to have the gift of tongues. And uh, at the time, I was uh, taking first year Greek, and I sat down with her and actually walked her through First Corinthians chapter twelve, verses twenty-seven through thirty-one. And I showed her with my Greek New Testament that that particle "may" means no. The answer to the question is each of these says no. And what happened is is that I I, I kind of did this uh, little dialogue with her um where I, I i would ask the question and i you know and i would point to the, the, the you know and i and i would have her answer the question so i'd say i asked her are, are all prophets and she said no i said i, I said all are, are all apostles and she said no i said are all teachers and she says no and then i asked the question uh, i go do all work miracles and she said no i said do all possess the gifts of, of healing and uh, and she said no i said do all speak in tongues and she goes yes <laughs> And I said to her, that's not what the text says. And what was her answer? She says, yeah, but that's not what I believe. Okay? That is the telling thing. That's, she said, that's not what I believe, which cut basically...
1: I reject your reality and substitute my own.
0: That's right. That's from the Mythbusters. Let me play that again. This was her basically saying...
1: I reject your reality and substitute my own.
0: Yep. And she was saying that to God. (laughs) I reject your reality and I substitute my own. So... Uh, Angela and Glenn, when it comes to the gift of tongues, okay, the argument that the gifts have ceased is not a strong argument. I don't think it can be backed biblically, get back to the limits that God's word puts on these gifts and point out the fact that gifts is really, the gift of tongues is not something that's really exalted as a great gift. In fact, we're instead to seek after the ones that build up the body of Christ, and point out the excesses that people use and that many times is all that the holy spirit needs in order to clean some of the stuff up that uh, people are falling into in the excesses of the pentecostal movement. All right, we're going to take our second break and when we come back like as promised we'll do we'll march through uh, the gospel of mark a little bit more and then we're going to talk about the bailout. And we're why because believe it or not this whole bailout thing really lends itself well to a wonderful gospel, uh, something that's really a, 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 almost outrageous how good the gospel is. And uh, and then we'll look at somebody who completely biffs it, a Christian pastor who apparently doesn't even understand the gospel enough to catch the, <clears throat> the gospel themes regarding bailout. All right, well, if you would like to email me regarding anything that you've uh, heard so far, um, you can do so at TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com. dot uh, Please do not write to me in tongues, um, unless you have the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, I you know I don't know where to go to on the internet to have somebody somebody's email written in tongues be interpreted. Anyway, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back.
2: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com or the big-picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible.
0: and oh, we're back you're listening to fighting for the faith Good emails today by the way guys loving it smart audience good questions all right if you have your Bibles we're gonna continue working our way through the gospel of Mark. And by way of preface, just to remind you all, this is not to show off my theological prowess, but to show off just how great God's Word is. These stories are real stories. These actually happened, recorded by eyewitnesses. There's just great stuff in here. And you're going to find that the Gospels, the good news portion of the uh, scriptures, are just chock full of good news. Uh, Why? Because the good news is that Christ died for our sins. So we read, uh, we'll pick up now at uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, and uh, we'll, we'll start from here. We'll, uh, and basically, as I'm teaching, the goal here is to just point out little things along the way, but let the text do the work. Uh, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Nehemiah and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Jesus was a popular guy for a while. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them, Not to make him known believe me when i tell you you don't want the devil proclaiming the truth there's even a, a great story when paul was on one of his missionary journeys i forget the city was in, i think it was philippi there was a gal there was a slave gal there who was possessed by a demon and she this demon gave her the ability to foretell the future and um and she was basically saying that you know pointing out paul and saying this man is teaching you Uh, the truth about the Most High God, and he was perplexed by it, and finally he cast out the demon. Uh, Believe me, when Satan is proclaiming God, there's a second agenda going on there. The the truth is always the bait, and there's a hook when the the devil's up to it. So Jesus here is not wanting the the demons to know what was going on, and as Ray from L.A. pointed out yesterday, that's a little bit humbling that, uh, that we didn't recognize him, but the demons did. Anyway, so verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. By the way, apostle means sent one, somebody who was sent. So Jesus appoints the twelve that he desired, that he picked, they they were called the apostles, which means the ones who are sent, and he that and he might send them out to preach, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Just a little note here, in Mark chapter three verse fourteen, it says that Jesus sent them out that they might preach. The a Greek word there is um, uh, um it comes actually it comes from the Greek word caruso, um, and it means to be an, a herald uh it's the, the idea is they're going out to make an official announcement to make known to make public declarations or to proclaim out loud so uh somebody who was carousing that's not good greek but is somebody it's 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 this idea that they're a herald of the kingdom so it's not that they were just going out to preach you, you, when we think about preaching we just think about somebody who gets up behind a pulpit and and blathers on for you know long amounts of time on about things no that really the the greek word that's translated as preach here has with it this uh, this idea of somebody who's a herald of a kingdom somebody who's proclaiming a truth or making an official announcement and so the apostles didn't go out there and preach what they wanted They went out to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which was the official announcement that Jesus gave them to uh, give. That's important. So we continue. So he sent them out that uh, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boan, I always mess up this word uh, Boanerges that is the sons of thunder Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not eat and when his family heard of it they went out to seize him for they were saying that Jesus is out of his mind Important little note there, okay, for those of you who uh, might say that Mary was sinless, um, it's pretty clear here that uh, in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and tw- uh, 21, that Jesus' family thought Jesus was nuts, and uh, it, this is the, uh, you might as well call this Mark 51.50, because that's what's going on here. These guys, you know, his own family was coming to take him away and put him in the, in the in the little white room with the padded cell. They didn't have those back then, but that's the idea here. They thought Jesus was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They, they were embarrassed by what he was doing. They didn't believe. And what's interesting, what's interesting is that Jesus later, you know, his brothers eventually do believe. Jude, the epistle of Jude, was written by uh, one of Jesus' brothers. And so what happens is at some later point, he does believe in his brother. But it's got to be tough growing up in the family with Jesus and believing that he's the son of God. Because, you know, you remember going to grade school with him or working with him in the shop. And and so Jude didn't believe until after the resurrection. Important point. All right. So we continue. So Mark 3, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub by the prince of the demons. He casts out demons and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Now, this leads to a question. When when, when you read this passage and you talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? And what if you've committed it? <laughs> First of all, if you're worried about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, chances are you haven't done it. But, um, let me, let me find out, let me find this passage, um, the word I'm looking for is unbelief, and I'm looking for it in the Gospel of John, okay, let's see, convict the world, let me, let me find this, I apologize, I'm looking this up in, okay, John chapter 16, all right, turn with me if you would, John chapter 16, okay. Jesus here um, is talking about the coming Holy Spirit. Folks, you want to know how you can know for sure that the Holy Spirit is at work? You would think that you would know the Holy Spirit is at work if people were speaking in tongues. The problem is is that um, there's lots of religions, including strains of Islam, where people speak in tongues. Um, If you're familiar with the the ancient cultic practices at the uh, Oracle of Delphi, you know the, the the temple of Delphi there in in, uh, in Greece. Uh, what would happen is is that the uh, the priestesses at the Oracle of Delphi would uh, go down into the lower portions of the temple that was there, and apparently breathe in these uh, volcanic gases that were leaking out of the earth there, that uh, caused them to go into an altered state of consciousness, and they would speak in tongues, and the the priest there would interpret this ecstatic speech. So just because someone's speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit is at work. Um, how about miracles? If you see miracles happen, do you know for sure that uh, um, that the Holy Spirit is at work? Uh, the answer to the question is no, because you have to test the message. Remember, miracles are only support only do something, and that is to support a message. And so you have to look at what the message is that's being proclaimed when miracles are being performed, because there are false miracles, are miracles that support false messages. So how do you know when the Holy Spirit is working? Well, Jesus, funny enough, actually tells us what to look for when the Holy Spirit is working. And this is uh, John chapter 16, verses um, 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. Let me read this. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, this is Jesus speaking, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me; concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, how do we know when the Holy Spirit is working? Well, we we know the Holy Spirit is working when people are being convicted of their sins and their unbelief in Jesus. Okay, the work of the Holy Spirit then really is to convict men of their sin and unbelief. This is important in understanding what the sin against the holy spirit is because the sin against the holy spirit is none other than unbelief. That's really what it is. Faith is the opposite. Trusting in Christ is is the opposite. So the the, the holy spirit's job is to convict us of our sin and unbelief. And here we see the we see the scribes claiming that Jesus is possessed by the devil, which would be the ultimate statement of unbelief. Rather than believing that Jesus is sent by the Father, that Jesus comes from God, that Jesus is God in human flesh, Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive sins, uh, they instead say, oh, well, we don't doubt that he's performing miracles, but we say that he's doing it by the power of Satan. That's a complete confession of unbelief. So just want to let you know that so if you're worried about committing the, the, the blasphemy of the holy spirit blasphemy blaspheming the holy spirit is to deny and, uh, and not believe in jesus christ anyway mark 31 thir- three thirty one, and his mother and his brothers came and were standing outside and they sent to him and called to him remember they think he's crazy and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to jesus hey your mother and brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And what is the will of God? To believe in the one whom the Father has sent. All right, we'll pick up Mark chapter 4 on Monday. All right, which now leads us to our next issue. We're going to be doing a sermon review from Tim Worth of Relevant Church, because, you know, relevance is such an important thing nowadays, apparently, um, so much relevance is more important than faithfulness to God's Word, um, and to proclaiming Christ, apparently. But um, Paul Worth, the sermon we're going to listen to, has to deal with the the topic of the bailout. If, now, if you don't know what's going on regarding the bailout, you know, I I hate to have to bring you up to speed on current events, but... If if in case you've walked, you've been asleep for about a year, um, then you know that the U.S. economy and the economies of the Western nations and around the world are um, in a serious decline. So much so that, that, that people are throwing around scary words like recession, or even worse, the even scarier word, depression. People are losing their jobs. Businesses are failing. Companies are going bankrupt. People are having their salaries and wages cut. They're having their hours cut because, uh, well, there's been a lot of money lost. And so what happened is, is that the U S banks, they, uh, they were on the verge of going bankrupt and going out of existence themselves. And they came to the federal government with their hands open, asking for a federal bailout. Now this bailout is a very very controversial thing there's lots of people who say those crooks those banks those people they should go out of business we shouldn't save them okay and there's other people on the other side saying well they don't deserve to be saved but if we don't save them then we're all gonna go down with the ship right and so there's lots of people who are upset and and so there's been there's been bailout after bailout and there's been two phases to this one bailout package. And and now Obama and his administration have, have sealed the deal and made sure that the second half of this money has gotten out to the banks in order to bail them out. Okay. Which ironically, this particular current event lends itself. It it, it does a good job of kind of explaining just this, the huge scandal that the gospel is okay now i'm going to share with you the scandal up front and i want you to compare my take on this bailout and then compare this to what you're going to hear in the sermon that we're going to review today so we've got this um, wonderful parable that jesus tells and um it's, it's 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 really it's really scandalous it's this this terribly scandalous parable and it's the story of this unjust servant well this the servant who owes a lot of money um and so we're gonna (laughs) all right let me let me pull this up on my computerized bible um all right hold on a second here i was in the wrong spot
2: Okay. From your heart.
0: (laughs) Okay, there it is. All right. Sorry about that, folks. I I lost my place in my computerized Bible, which can be very embarrassing when you're live on the air. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay,
0: it's uh here it is. Matthew chapter 18. All right, sorry about that. Matthew chapter 18. This terrible. Terrible story. Okay, so we're talking about bailout. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 verse 23, "Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, okay? Now, let me um, give you some perspective on this. 10,000 talents. This is an interesting sum that's uh, being brought up here. Um, each talent is basically worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer, Okay. Uh, a talent, if it were measured out is supposedly like a hundred pounds. So 10,000 talents. So this King is settling accounts. He's got a servant. Let me pull out my calculator here. We're going to do a little bit of math and I'm terrible at this. Um, that's why I, I rely on calculators. So we got 20 times 10,000. Um, so basically this guy owes the King 200,000 years worth of wages, 10,000 talents. Now, bailout is our theme at the moment. Okay, I want you to think about this. 10,000 talents, that's pretty close to... the economy of a small nation now to take into consideration today's inflation rates we're pretty much up into the billions of dollars at this point maybe even a trillion the number doesn't really matter per se you could say it's a bazillion dollars the point is is that this guy according to the parable owes the king about 200,000 years worth of wages (laughs) 200,000 years um So I don't know, the story doesn't say how he came to be in such debt, but that's what's going on here. The king wants to settle accounts, and the guy doesn't even say, um, he doesn't even ask for a bailout, but he just asks that the king would be patient with him, Right. So, and since he could not pay his master, his, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in pay, that payment might be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And to which, as you're listening to the story, you're, you, you should go, right? Yeah. How are you going to do that? 200,000 years worth of wages. Be patient with me and I'll pay you everything. And it says, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, when we read this story, we should be thinking major bailout here. In fact, I guarantee you, if there was somebody who owed the federal government 200,000 years worth of wages. In fact, let's just do a little math. All right. Um, right, we're going to pull out the old trusty calculator. Let's just say that this guy makes $100,000. You know, the average worker in America, what do they make? Sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. we will go with $60,000. $60,000 per year times 200000 Oh, good night. <laughs> it's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. 12 with eight zeros after it what is that that's a lot of money so we've got a Oh man hang on a second here uh hundreds a hundred thousand one one two three one two three four five six okay now we're in so the guy owes about 1.2 billion dollars to the feds so we got a guy who owes 1.2 a single person who owes 1.2 billion dollars to the federal government okay and obviously the economy's bad and the the US is now calling him to pay his debts he doesn't have it. And at this point if this were happening in the United States this guy would make the news. 1.2 billion dollars that he owes the federal government. How is he going to pay, right? He's not he's not Bill Gates, you know, apparently not. So he at this point there would be controversy. Should the federal government bail him out? Should he be thrown in prison and the key lock for life? You know, at this point, you know, we read in the story this guy owes this huge debt, and scandalously, believe me, if the, if President Obama just pardoned this guy, people would be all over Obama. What? How could you pardon this guy? People would be, this is scandalous. This whole story that this king forgave this guy, this, this multi-billion dollar debt is scandalous. It's a bailout of bailouts. Okay? It's just too good to be true. What, what reasonable king forgives somebody who owes this much money? You've got to be kidding me, right? And as we read this story, that's where the scandal of the cross is. All right. When you read this parable, you're that guy. You are. I am. You are the guy who owes God this huge debt. And no amount of patience, no amount of hard work on your part is going to make it possible for you to pay the debt that you owe to God. And how did you come to owe God this debt? All of the sin and wretchedness that you've committed in your life. You... Literally, every single time you didn't love God with all of your heart, every sin that you committed, everything that you did that was evil by not acting, everything, this is what you owe God. And this is the scandal here. God gives this amazing bailout through Jesus Christ and is literally offering to completely cancel the debt. Wipe it free and let you go free wipe it out and let you go free that's the scandal here that this king would cancel all the debts and that's the scandal of the cross that it would save even a wretch like you save even a wretch like me okay talk about a bailout All right. So we continue. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred denarii. Okay. A hundred denarii. That's a day's wage for a laborer. So what a hundred denarii guy owes him about three months worth of wages. Okay, let's see. The guy was, had his debt canceled of 200,000 years worth of wages, and this guy owes him three months worth of wages, right? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, grab him by the neck, start choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Hmm, those words sound really familiar, really, really, really familiar. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. But when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you now not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. That's 200,000 years worth of wages. So also my heavenly father will do to everyone of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Scary story, isn't it? Talk about the ultimate bailout. It also instructs us, as to how the mercy of God... The, see, that's it. When you think about the debt that has been canceled by Christ's blood on the cross, extended to you as a full and complete bailout and pardon, that really should have an impact on how we treat others. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of the forgiveness and mercy of God. And that means we get to love and forgive others their measly little debts that they owe us, especially in light of how much God has bailed us out. So this whole concept of bailout really lends itself to gospel preaching, right? Think about it. Each of us bailed out scandalously. So much so that I guarantee you that when you walk into heaven, there're going to be people who are going to their heads are going to turn and they're going to go, "Oh my goodness, that person made you that person made it in?" Believe me when I tell you. When I get to heaven, there's going to be people sitting there going, oh, man, the neighborhood just got terrible. I can't believe Rosebro's here. <laughs> That's how scandalous it is because they know I'm a sinner. And I know I am, too. It's scandalous. The gospel is scandalous. It's the bailout of bailouts. It's the most ridiculously absurd and offensive bailout. There are people who are angry that we've spent almost a trillion dollars bailing out these banks. And yet that's the scandal of the cross in a real way that God has scandalously bailed you out. You deserve hell. And believe me, there are people in your life that know that and they're kind of hoping for it in some cases. (laughs) Sorry. I don't mean to be so blunt, but see the King has bailed you out through the blood of Christ With that knowledge, okay, and that concept of bailout, we now dive into a a relevant sermon. We won't do it in its entirety, but you'll get the point. Preached by Pastor Paul Wirth of Relevant Church called Personal Bailout. That's the name of it, okay? And let's see if he brings Christ in the gospel or if he uh, brings something else, because it really does make a difference, and without any further ado, we'll now listen in at Relevant Church as they talk about the sermon called "Personal Bailout." Okay, got to rewind. Got to rewind because you have to hear these lyrics. It starts off at the tail end of a song. Listen to these lyrics. What? What just happened? <laughs> Hang on a second. My computer went into crazy mode. Here we go.
2: Bailout.
0: Yeah, those lyrics were God, help me help myself. I need a bailout. Hmm. Already we're off on the wrong foot.
1: Launched into this whole idea of bailout, and I know that that we talked about last week how that many of us feel like in this whole grand scheme of the of the big bailout that our government has given to everyone else that we have been somehow left out of the loop a little bit, and, and we've been a little bit uh, a little bit upset about that. And, and last week, though, we had to come to the realization that the whole thing that has spawned all of this is our insatiable desire and our greediness. You know, I was looking this past week at uh, at some statistics that just rolled out about unemployment. And it's staggering to think that uh, unemployment is at its highest level that it's been in literally decades, 7.2%. But then on the flip side of that, I look at it and I go... So what that means is 7.2% of our of our population in our country is out of work. But literally almost 93% of our, our country is still working. And, and sometimes we have to turn those things that are really negative and we have to start looking at something that is going to give us hope. If not, then what we will do is we will continue to bask in our helplessness. And if we continue to do that, then what we start doing is, is we start believing that there is no hope. And that nothing is ever going to get better. I know that um, when the very first bailout happened with AIG of $85 billion, there was this uh, crazy thing floating around the internet that what would it be like if, if the government actually gave us that bailout? And I'm not sure who put that out at first, but whoever it was... Couldn't add or subtract or multiply and divide because they said, you know what? If every American that paid taxes were given that, we'd each get $425,000 a piece. Anybody get that email? Anybody in here get that email? I, I got that email and I was like, what in the world, man? I want some of that, Jack. And then I did the math myself and it was actually $425. It's like, I think you added a few zeros. I don't know. You missed something somewhere. So I did the I did the calculations out. And if we were to take the $800 billion that, that's been given over the past six months, and we were to put that together, and we were to divide it by the probably just over 200 million taxpaying Americans in our country, each of us would get about $3,500. And I said, I could use that. I could use that as a bailout. And then I forgot that back in May, we actually got a bailout from the government to the tune of $152 million that we got in a stimulus package. And, and I thought, I said, well, what did we do with that money? And I, and I don't know about you. But I spent mine, okay? You know, you get it, you spend it. And that was part of the stimulus thing. But, but here's the problem that most of us do. When we get a stimulus package like that, instead of getting the TV that we, that we could afford with the money that we got, we get twice the TV and then we only have to charge half of it. So we get the, like, the ginormous one. So we still go into debt. And so we continue to make this problem happen. And I think that today, What we have to do is look at our personal responsibility in this whole problem. Because there is some personal responsibility. And I know this about money. No one can make us spend more money or save more money except us.
0: All right, got to stop here for a second. Um, Okay. Notice that we're, both of us, myself and uh, Tim Worth, are dealing with the same foil so to speak the bad economy the bailout package and he's going to talk about the law and he's right that there's things you know that we've done to bring this on ourselves you know bad behavior and and overspending and, and stuff like that and but remember we're in church we're supposed to be in church here listening to a church service so this man is called to preach, Caruso, to proclaim as a herald. And uh, his solution? Personal responsibility. Personal responsibility equals self-righteousness. So the solution to our sin is us taking responsibility and doing something different. The scandal of the cross is that when we screw up, Christ is offering us mercy and forgiveness. Repent and believe the gospel. That's not where Pastor Worth is going to go. Let's continue.
1: And most preachers do not talk about money because most preachers are afraid to talk about money because most of the time people walk into church, they go, oh, it's about money. They want more of it. And for the most part, that is completely true. I will agree with you. Susie and I were watching television this week, and I don't typically watch Christian television because... It's just a little scary some, most of the time. And, uh, and this particular time, it was really, really scary. And uh, there was a guy on there, and, and he was just preaching away, man, firing on all cylinders. And he was sucking wind and throwing it out, man, and it was good. And I was like, wow, how does he say all that in one breath? I don't even know how he does that. But he made a statement that literally I wanted to jump through the television and punch him right square in the nose. I'm not lying. It just infuriated me. He looked at people and he got to the very end of his sermon and the pitch happened. He said, bless God, those credit cards got you into this problem. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to use that credit card and I want you to send me some money because if God used it to get you into it, he can use it to get you out of it.
0: All right, pause for a second here. Pastor Tim Worth is rightfully pointing out uh, a complete abuse on the part of televangelists. Um, okay, so if you're going to point out something that's wrong, the question is, what's the solution? Okay, well, I'm going to agree with him that uh, those charlatans out there in TBN land and on God TV who come up with such ridiculous arguments as, if your credit card got you into this, I want you to use your credit card to give me money because God will use that to get you out of it stupid absolutely evil and wrong he's right to point this out let's continue
1: i went are you an idiot what is wrong with you you just told people to go into more debt to give you money you're out of your flipping mind that is not biblical i'm telling you it's not it doesn't make any sense and i went no wonder people think we're nuts no wonder people hate the church We tell people to do crazy stuff that doesn't even make any sense with their money. And usually it has to do with my benefit. And that's not right. That's just not right. I believe that if you and I can get our finances in order according to God's plan, he will take care of his church. We don't have to beg you to do that.
0: If if we can get our finances together according to God's plan, then if then is what kind of talk that's law talk it's not gospel talk it's law talk so apparently the book of numbers in the Old Testament that's an accounting book to teach you how to apply um, financial principles to your life let's continue
1: God will do that himself I think it's about us helping each of us understand Whose money it is And how to use it properly That's the only way that we will get out of the economic crisis That we find ourselves in And that we find our country in I want all of us to live in financial freedom I really do I have a desire for all of us to do that
0: Financial freedom. This is a pastor whose concern, main concern is that uh, he wants everyone to live in financial freedom. Really? I thought the job of a pastor is not to be an accountant or a financial coach, but to proclaim the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, financial freedom? Now, granted, I'm not knocking financial freedom, and I really do hope that that everyone listening here to my voice today that you have enough sense to spend less than you make, to put aside savings and to not be dependent upon credit cards. And if you're in a situation where you have racked up credit card debt, that you would apply some good financial thinking to figuring out how to get out of that debt if you have the means to do so. And uh, that's great and all. But the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't about financial freedom. And in a church... We've been called to preach the word, and I don't remember or recall uh, major sections of scripture that um, deal with the principles for attaining financial freedom, because the gospel applies to those who have a lot of money as well as to the poor. It applies to master as well as slave. It applies to everybody, regardless of your financial situation, whether you're backwards, upside down in your mortgage, or whether or not you own 10 properties as rental properties and and, uh, own a Gulfstream jet.
1: Let's continue. But the problem is most of us don't live in financial freedom because to live in financial freedom, we're going to have to give up something. And most of the time we don't live in spiritual freedom because we won't give up that either. You see, because in either of those circumstances, if we want to be in financial freedom or if we want to be in spiritual freedom, we are going to have to give up something.
0: Uh, what verse is that? What verse does it say that I have to give up something? The wealthy people I know, they their lives aren't marked by giving things up. And believe me, I know some very wealthy people. Um, and spiritual freedom requires me to give up something? I thought it required me to trust in Christ to repent and believe the gospel I'm gaining rather than losing. See that's the thing. you know Scripture describes sin as slavery and as forgiveness and forgiveness as freedom. so why would I be giving something up coming to Christ? I would be set free from something, not giving up something. Just want to point that out,
1: and it's this it's this crazy word. That that maybe we don't like to think about, but a lot of times we talk about And it's this word called indulgence. You ever heard that word? Just indulge yourself. I mean, we hear it at Christmas time all the time. Right on the front of the cookbooks. Indulge yourself this holiday season. I went online and just typed in the word indulge yourself. And here's some of the things I came up with. Save frustration. Indulge yourself. Okay. Indulge with a high-end audio system. Indulge with a free night at Cambridge Beach Resort. Indulge yourself this holiday season with these tasty treats. Indulgence. Indulgence raises its ugly head all the time. And you know what it tells us? It tells you and I, we deserve this. That something somehow, some way, we have been held back on something that we desperately deserve, our body deserves it, we deserve it, and we should go ahead and indulge ourselves, whether it 's with chocolate or cookies <coughs> or the new television or the new car or whatever it is it 's this whole idea of indulge yourself
0: okay uh, wouldn 't that qualify as um, indulgence um, sin? self-centeredness the problem is a complete bent we're completely bent in on ourselves and this impacts even how we handle money and this is why because we're sinners and we're so bent on ourselves that marketing such as that is so successful it plays to our sinful nature and our desire to be our own god yeah I do deserve a 64-inch
1: plasma screen, high-definition television. Foods say it all the time. Indulgence, the definition for it is gratification of our desires. The secondary definition of it is catering to moods or whims. And I'm telling you, Susie and I, yesterday afternoon, we were driving around, beautiful day, and gas prices are lower so that we can celebrate that about financial stuff. Gas prices are lower. So we could drive around. We could just drive around just because. He was like, so he goes, Anthony goes, what are we doing? We said, we're driving around. He goes, why? And I said, because gas is cheaper and we can. <laughs> Yay. I don't know. But we were driving around. And anytime I drive around, certain places call my name. Like a Lacey Bakery. Those kind of places call my name. And we're driving around in West Tampa and it was like my car it was a homing device and went doo, 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 doo. turned on MacDill, man, went down to Cypress. Oh, take a left. Okay, right down there. And I said, What's buy one, get one free today? And it was Devil Crabs. <laughs> Score for me. I had more fried stuff yesterday afternoon. I was just indulging in Susie. So we're driving away and she goes, Wow, we just indulged then, didn't we? I was like, Oh yeah, I can preach on that. Um uh, that's what we do we indulge ourselves and it's like we're treating ourselves to something that maybe we're not supposed to have but we indulge ourselves and we tell ourselves that we deserve it maybe you guys will remember this guy who indulged himself from the bible this is probably goes back two years to real men of genius his name was Solomon see if you remember this guy Relevant Church presents Real Men of Genius. A Real
4: Man of Genius.
2: Today we salute you, Mr. Wisest Man in All the Land.
4: Mr. Wisest Man in All the Land.
2: Dispensing priceless pearls of wisdom, you penned the first ever self-help book, Proverbs.
4: Socks, that's my dummy.
2: Most guys have trouble dealing with one wife.
1: You had 300 plus 700 concubines.
0: Play on, play
1: If one burns dinner, no worries. You don't have to see her again for another 300 days.
3: That'll teach the moment. And
1: perhaps your wisest move of all, accumulating enough wealth to make Bill Gates look like a peon.
3: Microsoft mom and
1: pop. So sit back and bask in the glow that is your brilliance, wise guy. We appreciate your crunk cranium.
4: Mr. Wisest Man in All the Land.
2: Relevant Church, Evard City, Florida.
1: Oh, a little throwback. Throwbacks are great, but, you know, when we think about Solomon, this is the smartest guy in the whole Bible who was sometimes dumber than a box of rocks. And I don't understand it. How does wisdom sometimes not translate to common sense? But sometimes it just doesn't. And here's what he did. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you can kind of... Look at that whole song that we talked about and all the things that he decided to accumulate. And we get to see what happened when he received all those things. He starts off in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 1. He says this, I said to myself, come. Now, now he's talking to himself. See, that, that's first notion that something's not right there. I says, I says to myself, I says, let's give pleasure a try. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was was meaningless. So that was meaningless. So he jumps down to verse 4 and he says this, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks and filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my, my flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women. And others were born in my household. I also owned great herds and flocks more than any other king who lived in Jerusalem. I collected great sums of silver and gold. The treasures of many kings and provinces. He had it all. He had it all. He tried everything. Gold, silver, women, houses. Really, really pimped out chariots, I'm sure. He had it all. And he gets down to verse eleven and he says, But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And I think what happens is indulgence literally was the theme of Solomon's life. Was indulge yourself. Whatever your heart desires, whatever whim you feel, you go do that. And I can tell you that for me, for years, indulgence, I've been the indulgence guy. If I saw something, I found a way that, that I would have it. And it seems like for me that uh, the problem with indulgence is that it doesn't stop with indulgence. You see, indulgence leads to overindulgence, doesn't it? Which leads to regret on the backside of it. But for some reason, whenever we, whenever we play the commercial in our mind, indulgence on this side never seems to, that it's going to lead to foreclosure on that side financially. Indulgence on this side never seems like it's going to lead to spiritual unrest on that side. But when we choose to leave God out of the picture and just indulge ourselves on any whim that we want, that's exactly what happens. It seems like every year in January... We do some sort of financial series, some sort of talking about it. And and every year, I stand before you and tell you what an absolute buffoon I am with my finances. Because it seems like every year, this cyclical thing keeps happening over and over again. Christmas comes in December, and I want to make sure my kids have the best Christmas in the world. And so I spend the stuff that I don't have. And then January comes, and I have to preach a sermon on it, and I have to repent. And then I pray that my tax refund check will be big enough so I can cover Christmas. Anybody been there? I can tell you that this year, after three years of trying, after three years of my wife about beating me over the head, this year, we end Christmas with a zero balance on our credit cards. This year, for the first time, and it's because...
0: Uh, Okay, cool. Congratulations. Uh, You've ended the Christmas season with a zero balance on your credit card. But isn't the whole point of the gospel that, uh, the huge debt that we owe God, God cancels it to a zero balance? Then on the cross, he nails the note to it and says, forgiven in full, paid in full? (sighs) This is supposedly a Christian church, and wow, congratulations, you... Have a zero balance on your credit card. Wow, he's so much holier than I am in
1: in you as we just decided i don't want to do that anymore i am sick and tired of indulging and then living in fear and then living with regret in january i'm st-.
0: so then you're the solution to your problem i mean you just have to decide that you are sick and tired of it and you're going to stop doing it and and that's what there so that see all you got to do is decide to do the right thing and say you're sick of it that's the solution man just do the right thing. Just do it. Because, yeah.
1: i sick of it. I am sick and tired of it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not a rocket scientist at all. And I'm going to tell you, doing this is not rocket science. Doing this is choosing to say, you know what? I don't have to indulge. I don't have to indulge. It's the first time. And literally, probably our whole married life that we have money in our savings account, no, no money on our credit cards, and we're going, wow, this feels really pretty good. And this Christmas, we had a great time. But you know what we did? We went, we went to Indiana, and we made sure that we had the money in the bank before we actually bought the airline tickets to go to Indiana. Shocking how we could do that. I didn't even know we could do that. I was like, Susie, how did we do that? She goes, I saved it. What? How'd you do that? She goes, you stopped going to Starbucks all the time. That helped a lot. Okay. All right. I was part of it. I was part of the success. At least I'm telling myself that. Maybe it was that she started working too some. I don't know. <laughs> Go to work, woman. No, <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay, sometimes I did. Um. Okay.
0: Best construction so far. Um, He did correctly identify the sin of self-centeredness and indulgence, and the solution at this point is miserable. He's not proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. He's just... I wonder if Jesus has anything to do with this. I mean... Actually, at this point, the savior in the story is his wife. Okay.
1: But really, I don't think that the situation in our economy, if anything, you know what it's done? It's brought us back to our roots sometimes, and sometimes even our spiritual roots. Because I I have found this out in my own life, and I found it out in in the lives of many people that, that I connect with, on a daily basis, that in times of great success, we don't need God. And in times of distress, we blame God. But in times of unrest, in times of questioning, we begin to seek God. And I know that sounded really, really like a good preacher, you know. But I actually, I don't know, it just came to me and I went, you know, I know in my life, when things are really good, I'm like... I'll talk to God. I'm like, Hey God, thanks for all the blessings in my life. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. And when things are really bad, I'm like, why, why God is this happening to me? What is wrong with you? And then because things are horrible and I'm like, okay, God, you better show up right now or me and you are going to fifth city. That's all there is to it. Okay. And, uh, I know, maybe you've never fought with God like that. I I am completely off the chart today. I'm not sure what's going on. I had a little too much caffeine today, I think. I'm not sure. But but there are times when I just don't understand. And it's in those times that I find myself on my knees going, God, I don't get this. And maybe that's where you are. Because I can tell you that two years ago, in the boom of the real estate market, and then the boom of our economy... None of us thought that two years later We would be sitting with our With our stock market in the 8,000's Not in the 12,000's We never thought that it would happen And we're, we're not sure And we didn't think that maybe we would be Without a job And we have a ton of questions And those ton of questions send us To places where we seek answers In areas that we didn't find them before <laughs>
0: um notice that his this would just be a far better sermon if he had just opened his Bible to a one of the gospels and started preaching. But that's not what's happening here. We've got the Mr. Wise Guy snippet thing that he did on Solomon, who by the way was ins- you not know, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen Proverbs and Ecclesiastes um, we might m- not want to be so quick to uh, label him stupid anyway I can't wait to find out if there's a solution here offered for this personal angst that this guy's talking about here but again is the job of the church to solve the economic problems or to proclaim the solution to all of humanity's problems jesus christ b
1: we don't know how things went from incredibly good to incredibly bad and i know that we've asked ourselves how do how do large corporations mismanage literally billions and billions of dollars without anyone noticing it
0: actually corporations don't do anything corporations are not human beings Human beings are the ones who work for corporations who make the decisions to squander the money or to mismanage it and lose it, things like that. Just want to you know, let you know that human beings are the ones at fault in situations like that, not corporations. Corporations are not anything. Human beings are.
1: And I begin to think this week, I said, well, how do I mismanage you know, thousands of dollars without ever noticing it. You just add zeros. That's what they've done. It's no different than, than the way we mismanage our money on a regular level. We mismanage thousands of dollars. They mismanage billions of dollars. It's just adding zeros. But the same principles still apply. And I know that if we look at, if we look at our, our country, it's modeled for us bad financial practices and that's true it has
0: Uh, Tim uh, Pastor Worth bad financial practices are a symptom of the problem the disease the disease is sin sin you and I are wretched we are born at war with God we are by nature children of the devil the reason why we sin is because we're sinners that's what sinners do And this is just one symptom of it. It's a big symptom. And the chickens have come to roost. And there's a lot of people hurting. But don't worry. When the economy turns around, they'll forget how bad things were and go back to mismanaging their money and feeling great about themselves and Consider themselves masters of the universe because of all the wealth and prosperity that they're able to generate. And see, that is a symptom of sin as well. Why aren't we getting to the real problem? Repent- Hello? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Have you heard of this concept? Maybe not.
1: It is borrowed from tomorrow to pay for things today. And that tomorrow keeps going out further and further and further and further. And now it's not just tomorrow. It's actually years and decades and centuries out there of what we're borrowing from. And if you think about it, with our credit problems that we have in our personal finances, we have done the same things. You say, okay, Paul, I feel really bad now. And I don't feel like it's getting any better. So now what do we do?
0: All right, well, we'll, okay, putting the best construction on it. We'll say, okay, Pastor Worth, you've now preached some law to us and people have have responded appropriately and they feel convicted because they've done the wrong thing. As a pastor, a Christian pastor, what is your obligation at this point? Is it to, A, give them more law and teach them how to help themselves, throw them back on themselves and tell them to try harder to do the right things, to marry a woman who will tell, that will insist that they save? Or... Proclaim Christ and the forgiveness of sins. That scandalous bailout that we all are being offered by the King of kings and the Lord of lords.
1: I, I think we have, to, we have to change the word indulgence and we have to replace it with another word. That, that's also biblical as well, and it's this word called contentment. And I know it's the antithesis of indulgence. But, but that's where the answer is found. You see, contentment, when I looked at the definition, here's what really all the definition boils down to.
0: So the solution is contentment. But contentment is a fruit of the Spirit that comes about as a result of faith in Christ. We wicked sinners can't seem to generate this one on our own. Where's Jesus?
1: Hello? To being satisfied. <clears throat> And I know that sirens go off when everybody hears this because the word contentment seems to indicate having nothing, (laughs) having nothing on the table, dressing like a pauper, driving the worst car. It's war. Contentment is not fun, but I don't think that that's what it is. You see, if you have a lot right now and God is blessing your socks off and God is just dumping a truckload of blessing on you, the Bible tells us to be content there and be a blessing there and be content with what God has done and be thankful and be generous. But it also says that if right now, instead of the the truck of blessing being dumped on you, the garbage truck is being dumped on you and you're like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm getting the wrong truck here. Okay, it says that we have to be content there too. And you go, Can I try the other one? Because I'd really like the other truck. Because my truck, I don't like it. It stinks, and it's not fun, and I continue to have to sift through this trash. Well, let me ask you this. If you don't ever learn how to be content with the garbage, why would God ever give you the other truck?
0: Oh, I see. So if I learn how to be content with garbage, God will give me greater things. Really. Uh, Would this preach in the slums of Bombay, Calcutta? I don't think so.
1: You see, I think that's what happens with us is we're not content with what we have because we feel like we deserve more. And when we learn how to be content with what we have, God says, I can now give them more. Is it? Is it? Oh, man.
0: So if you're content, then you that you've earned the right to get more. This is not gospel. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ contentment being a fruit of the spirit flows from the fact that we know that we have a gracious and heavenly father who we can trust knows that we need food and we need clothes and we can be content in whatever the circumstances knowing that our God has not abandoned us and that we he is faithful and just and we can trust in him we for the forgiveness of our sins and that he he knows us by name has adopted us as his children uh, see, that's completely different. He's just made contentment. If you get this right, then you can earn the next thing. Fail. This is just epic fail. This is not gospel preaching. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is not what the Bible t- teaches. Show me where in the scriptures it says that if you learn how to be content, then God will give you more.
1: As Christians. A guarantee? No. But contentment is the key. It's No, Christ is. It's the key to our happiness. It's the key to our joy in the middle of all of this stuff. Philippians chapter 4, the apostle Paul talks about this specifically. And he says, how grateful I am. And how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but for a while you didn't have the chance to help me. For a while they didn't have the chance to help me, but now these people in in the church of Philippi have the chance to help Paul, and they have. And he says, Now that I, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to get along happily, whether I have much or I have little. I know how to live on almost nothing, and I also know how to live with everything. That tells me that... Yeah,
0: again, taking out of context, if you'd read Philippians in its context, you'd realize all the gospel stuff that precedes that, that Paul says that... you know, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. We are the righteousness of Christ. We who trust by faith, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And that all the things that he did as a Pharisee or the Pharisees, you know, in in in, in his zeal and right, he considers that to be worthless, so that he might be found in Christ, having not a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He skipped all of that and just went on to the contentment part. So there's no context for this contentment. At least there's no gospel context. But see, it's the gospel, the preaching of Christ, abiding in Christ, abiding in the gospel, knowing that, the forgiveness of sins, not having a righteousness of our own, that God works in us and sanctifies us and causes fruit to be produced in us because of, and on account of, for the sake of Jesus Christ for our neighbor. Contentment flows as a gift of the Holy Spirit to the sanctified, those called, those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He's just preaching naked contentment as some kind of a principle that if you apply it, then you can earn the right to have more. Really. Really
1: the apostle paul knew what it was like to be bankrupt but he also knew what it was like to be rolling in it as well he had both extremes so that means he was probably really smart at one time and he was rolling in it making great tents because that's what they said he was his tent maker and and things where business was booming and then all of a sudden there was an economic crash and nobody was buying tents anymore
0: uh where does it say that in the bible What economic crash was there in the first century that that dried up the tent-making business for Paul? By the way, Paul was a tent-maker and a a church planter. He basically funded himself, his own ministry, through his tent-making. We don't read anything about an economic crash that destroyed the tent-making market. We do hear about a famine that afflicted other churches, and Paul raised money from the churches that were doing well to help the brothers in need in those other regions— But we don't read about the tent-making market crashing.
1: And he was on the other side of it. He said, I've learned that the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty or with plenty or little, for I can do everything with the help of Christ who gives me strength. He gives me the strength that I need. But even so... You've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Here's the amazing thing. There are some principles in here that I think are are key to to us in living, in living a content life. One is when when God has uh,
0: principles for living a content, see, that's what it is. The, the The Bible is just a handbook for living. You just need to find learn how to dig out those principles to apply to your life, and it'll make your life better. It'll be more easy. You'll be able to get through things with a better attitude. You'll apply the principles and you won't suffer financially. (sighs) This is not Bible preaching.
1: As dumped the truckload of blessing on us, we are supposed to help share that blessing with other people who maybe don't have that same truck on their lives right now. And as we receive that blessing from other people, when we need it so desperately, we are to never forget because there is going to be a day that's coming where my truck is going to be filled with blessing and I'm going to need to help someone else. I know back some years ago, that that movie, Pay It Forward, was, was huge. And it was all about... Taking a small blessing that you get and you pay it forward to somebody else and you bless somebody else and you bless somebody else and they bless somebody else and it becomes this new paradigm shift that happens in our culture where we begin to share blessing with other people, whether it's big or small. You share a blessing based on what you have and that could be huge and that could be very, very small, but we each have the opportunity to do it. You see, I think that's... Learning to live with contentment. So we've discussed this idea of contentment and indulgence. And I think we all get the fact that, that maybe we need a little more of this idea of contentment. But what else are we going to need if we're really going to embody this whole thing? Or this experience of this personal bailout? I think we're going to have to change. Ugh.
0: What about Jesus Christ bailing us out regarding our sins with that completely scandalous gospel that all of our sins are completely forgiven in Jesus Christ for free? Can't earn it. It's a complete gift given to us by God. You can't add to it or subtract from it. It's all done by Jesus Christ, who was our all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins once for all. (sighs) The concept of bailout lends itself to the gospel, and this Christian pastor doesn't even see it.
1: Now, I know change is a buzzword. Quite frankly, President-elect Barack Obama used it as a whole campaign slogan, and it worked. You know why? Because people do want change. People desire change. They do. Now, here's the deal. And, and, I, and I am quite certain I, I'm not nearly as, as smart as our president-elect, but I'm sure that now he is functioning with his cabinet right now going, okay, guys, now this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the oath of office and I'm going to be president and we're going to have to bring about that change. Now we have to start working at it. Because I think the notion was unbelievable because people want change. But, you know, here's the, here's the difficulty with change is that just because you desire change does not mean that change will actually occur because there is something that we desire. But if we want to actually see it come to fruition, we will have to act upon the change. And that means we have to change personally. And that's where most of us don't want to do it. We're like, yes, I want change as long as somebody else changes and I don't have to. I want to bailout, as long as I get a bailout, but I don't have to change my spending habits. Uh,
0: Pastor, um, the problem is is that I am a wicked sinner. And my natural tendency is to sin and to disobey God and to thumb my nose at him and launch grenades at his head and not obey him. And uh, no amount of pulling myself up by my bootstraps and trying harder is going to really ultimately get rid of that problem and change me enough to make an eternal difference. I need change that is affected by the preaching of the gospel, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying work of God's word and the sacraments and the Holy Spirit's working on my life. I can't make the change that you're speaking of. It won't get me into heaven and it ultimately won't make that much of a difference not by myself
1: i want to bail out financially and i want help financially but but i don't want to work for it i don't want to get a job and actually work to pay stuff guys that doesn't work change happens when you and i engage in the process Desire for change only means that you would like something to be different. Willingness to change means that I'm going to do the things that are necessary to see the change actually happen.
0: So the solution is me, 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 me. I'm thrown back on myself and at a church, I don't even hear of Jesus Christ and what he's done to save me. And bail me out um, I've just been told I've got a financial problem and I've got to commit myself to changing and making it better and doing the right things
1: hmm. and I will tell you that over three years there was time after time where I wanted change I wanted things in my financial situation to be different but I never actually did what was necessary in my own personal finances to make it happen and this year, we just said, we're going to do it. We are willing, we have a desire, but we also are putting action to our desires. The Apostle Paul is talking to us. A-
0: this is great advice. It's great advice, but it's not good news.
1: The church in Corinth about this whole idea of changing. And he says this in Second Corinthians chapter 7 He had had written a a, a very, very stern letter in 1 Corinthians. It was just like the stern letter of telling them all the stuff they were doing wrong. Kind of like the the teacher coming to you, pulling you into the principal's office and saying, you're in trouble for this and this and this and this and this. And you're going, I don't really like you anymore. Because you just told me all the stuff that that I'm doing and I'm not supposed to be doing it, but I like doing it. And so I don't like you anymore. And here was Paul's response to their response. He said this. He said, I'm no longer sorry that I sent you the letter. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Though I was sorry for a time, a brief time. Paul was, you know, that kind of guy. For I know that it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to have remorse and change your ways. It was kind of... it was."
0: Repentance. Repentance. But Paul gave them Christ in 1 Corinthians. I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. It's not naked repentance. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the changed life, the obedience that comes from faith.
1: It's the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. You are not in harm's way by us in any way. For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. I really think sometimes we we may look at the, the sorrow in our financial problems as a woe is me thing. But maybe the opposite is true. Maybe what this whole thing has done for us is help us to realize the error... Of our ways, and personally, we have to take some responsibility and say, You know what?
0: Some, some, some responsibility. Personally, take some. Oh, come on, preach the law here, Pastor.
1: I am the cause of my financial problems, and I will be the one to make some changes.
0: (sighs) We're in church. I am the cause of my financial problems. I have sinned against you, God, and against my neighbor. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus Christ. That's yeah, that's what's missing here.
1: So I don't live there anymore. Many of us want to change the way our body looks, but we don't want to change the things that will make it look the way we want it to look. Many of us want to change our financial status, but we're not willing to change what is necessary to make that happen. You see, change requires that we engage the current situation that we find ourselves in. And then do something different.
0: Great advice, but not good news.
1: Today our bailout starts with our personal responsibility. How does a
0: bailout begin with personal responsibility? Jesus Christ bailed us out when we didn't even deserve it. When we were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Completely one-sided, undeserved bailout by grace. And mercy. <sighs> How is it that you try keep trying to earn these things when they're free?
1: An acceptance of what we have done to contribute to the problem and our desire to change will let the bailout begin. Ugh.
0: Bailout based
1: upon you. Wow. Last year in January, we had an expert. Talk to us about what we do that is completely wrong in our thinking with our finances. Listen to what he said. You had mentioned something when, when you and I were sitting at lunch and we were talking about, you know, the market and how the market is volatile. And, and I know our media kind of drives a lot of a lot of that stuff, and it drives maybe our apprehensions, our, our anxiety about the market. And... Um, you know, and that was where I was coming from when I was talking about, you know, even my retirement plan currently and how it's been really up and down. And you told me something that I thought was fascinating about how the market functions based upon people like me and our reactions to that fluctuating market. Yeah, all the uh, institutions, the foundations, endowments, pension plans.
0: He's literally going to leave us with the advice of a financial planner
1: and so on and so forth. Uh, look at an index called the Small Investor Index.
0: Uh, where's the Small Investor Index located in the Scripture?
1: And the small investor is doing, they do the opposite. Because you guys are wrong every time. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. And so you're you're always going to buy high, you're going to be greedy, and you're always going to sell low because you're fearful. And so whatever that index is doing, the institutions are buying low and selling high. That's how you make money in the market. But but you guys get scared. And so they look very carefully at what the individual investor is doing and do the opposite because 99% of the time they're going to be right. It's weird that a year later... The very thing that Carl Sr. talked about is happening and has happened. And now we are faced with that opportunity to say, what will I do when the market is low? Will I invest or will I be fearful? What will I do with my finances? Am I going to be...
0: Pastor, don't you understand that that all of us are spiritually bankrupt? That when it comes to our righteousness, the market couldn't be lower. It's at complete zero. There is no economy of our own righteousness, and we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need a complete bailout by Jesus from God. Otherwise, we're all going to go to hell.
1: Fearful, or am I going to continue to invest and I'm going to uh, do the wise thing?
0: Is E. F. Hutton preaching this last part of the sermon? What's going on here?
1: We have to start doing the opposite, maybe this year with our finances, if we're going to see something change. Maybe we don't spend what we don't have. That- Is
0: he certified as a financial planner? I mean, uh, I mean, we've we've listened to sermons from people who I question whether or not they were they had the license to practice group therapy. I'm questioning whether he has a license as a financial planner to be giving us this financial advice at this point.
1: That would be opposite. Maybe this year we decide to have a real budget. That would be opposite. Maybe this year we begin a savings plan instead of a spending plan. Most of us have a very good spending plan.
0: Where is that in scripture?
1: But we have very little savings plan. We have a good, I'm really good at the spending plan. I've got that one nailed down. And maybe this year we have to stop using credit cards as a crutch (sighs) and start saving money and start using cash.
0: None of this is... Because you're not a good Christian if you have a credit card, by the way.
1: This is rocket science, but it's not easy either.
0: Good advice, not good news.
1: Susie and I still aren't doing everything that... uh, that we should be doing with our finances.
0: Well, then you're still sinning, and uh, where are you going to go to solve that problem? Are you going to try harder?
1: But we're moving in a different direction.
0: Who cares? Are you capable of moving far enough? Remember, God's law requires perfect righteousness.
1: We're moving in the opposite direction that we were moving in.
0: Whoop-de-doo.
1: And that was our personal responsibility. As people who are... Cry- ah,
0: so the gospel of personal responsibility. Folks, you are on your own. Good luck. Best of luck to you. I hope that you make it.
1: Christ followers to decide to start using the money that God has given us wisely and not foolishly. And each of us have a responsibility in that personal bailout. Let's pray. God, thank you.
3: Uh,
0: You see the difference? You start with a passage, and you can bring in outside examples that help make that passage come to life. When we read the parable of the, uh, the wicked, unjust servant who had his... 200,000-year wage debt canceled by this merciful and scandalously merciful king. Call that a bailout and apply that to our own lives regarding our own sin. Or you talk about the bailout of personal responsibility. Two completely different approaches. One's biblical, the other's not. One exalts Christ and proclaims Christ and him crucified for your sins, and the other, well, it just gives you good semi- well, actually kind of self-explanatory financial advice in the guise of a sermon. Well, folks, we're at the end of our program today. Again, you know, why do we do these bad sermons? Why? Because it gives us an opportunity to um, really, to highlight the gospel. We use bad sermons as a way of pointing out really where we should be going with a good sermon. And just a reminder... Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. We definitely need your contributions to continue to bring you this important radio outreach. And you can send a check to Fighting for the Faith at P.O. Box 791-SJC, California 92693 or go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the donate button. And until next time, may God bless you.